Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we're discussing A Bad Mom's Christmas, the sequel to Bad Moms, which stars Mila Kunis, Kristen Bell, and Katherine Hahn as a trio of worn-down moms whose Christmas plans go awry when their mothers, played respectively by Christine Baranski, Cheryl Hines, and Susan Sarandon, show up unexpectedly. So this is a Patreon request from Nicole. Thank you so much to Nicole. As always, we are very grateful to our Patreon uh, subscribers and people who request these episodes. This will be an interesting one to talk about because we have a rare situation, which is that I enjoyed this movie more than Gavia, which basically never happens. (laughs) Yeah, for once, I am the bummer. And I think the the context for that, perhaps I should have predicted, which is that um, I'm very picky when it comes to comedy. It's not that I don't like comedy as a genre, but, you know, when one has a favorite genre, like, for example, I will watch anything with a mermaid. I love horror. With comedy, if a comedy isn't good or it's not to my tastes, I will hate it. (laughs) and broad mainstream American comedy is definitely not my zone the last film I really liked along these lines was Booksmart which is definitely kind of the same in the sense that I mean A it's obviously like a movie that's about women and kind of aimed more or less at women and it's an R-rated comedy but that is a lot more in the sort of introspective indie movie zone even though it is very funny whereas this is like completely straightforward released at Christmas a bunch of stars very like mainstream easy to grasp sort of lowest common denominator comedy and I was just watching this being like oh these jokes are so basic and like getting annoyed by the gender roles which as we'll discuss later is not it's a criticism but also it is aimed fundamentally at a different and I think more politically conservative audience than both of us. (laughs) Well, I was thinking a lot watching this about like our different movie going experiences and just like cultural diets, because I think probably part of the reason why I was like, yeah, you know, I had a perfectly good time watching this. I don't think it's particularly good, but like, I thought it was fine. Like you had just lowered my expectations so thoroughly that there was no way I could have hated it as much as you unless it truly had been like the worst movie in the world, which this is not. But I just have so much more experience watching these kind of mainstream American comedies because I'm from here. (laughs) So you see a lot more of them. And one thing I was particularly thinking about was that you have zero acquired taste for Saturday Night Live like you hate it (laughs) yeah I have enjoyed some SNL sketches both new and well newish both Andy Samberg era and vintage but on the whole (laughs) I am not sitting down to watch an episode of SNL I'd probably die (laughs) and like I the past couple years have not really watched SNL at all because I think it's gotten just unwatchably bad but I grew up watching SNL with you know, my family and not religiously or anything, but like, I definitely have a fondness for Saturday Night Live and that show, like you're always going to get some sketches that are not good, but then some of them will be funny. And it's not for the most part, wildly sophisticated humor, but like, you know, I find it entertaining. And in terms of movies, 
like I have seen a lot of Seth Rogen movies. I've seen a lot of Judd Apatow movies. I've seen a lot of Paul Feig movies. And I think all of those are more interesting and better than this film. And I think they're aiming for something that's a little bit more sophisticated. Yeah, I I enjoy a Paul Feig movie. Yeah, he's he's probably the best of that group. Although I think Seth Rogen can be really interesting. They're all aiming for something, again, a little bit more sophisticated than this film, but are, like, very much within the mainstream of, like, broad American comedy. Like, they're aiming for mass popularity as opposed to art cinema, right? And so this is just more within the scope of, like, stuff that I would be likely to watch and enjoy. I did find it interesting, almost like in an anthropological way, because even given what I just said, this is so completely targeted at just like mass audiences and not critics. I think the kind of movies that I just referenced, even if they're not attempting to appeal to critics, they will always have a certain number of critics who will kind of be like, but no, this is really good. One that occurred to me was like Eurovision last year, which I didn't think was great, but I totally enjoyed. And there were a few critics who were like championing that movie aggressively the whole year last year because they really loved it. And I think there's a certain thread of like critical behavior that's almost like contrarian, right? Where you're like, yeah, I know this is a mainstream comedy, but like, actually it's good. It's kind of like the defense of the Fast and Furious franchise, which I am yes. definitely part of. I mean, yeah. I think Seth Rogen's a good comparison because this is also an R-rated comedy, but Seth Rogen is definitely kind of a respectable figure that people do discuss his work in an artistic way. And that is never going to happen with Bad Mom's Christmas because it's meant so that you and your friends can all go out to a movie at Christmas, probably while drunk and have an entertaining time and then probably forget about it. Yeah, but like this movie and its predecessor, which neither of us have seen, we should say, made a ton of money, right? And so again, for me, there was a sort of anthropological value in saying like, there are a lot of movies that are not making any effort to be sort of thought about on an artistic, serious level, but they're being made and are really popular. I would say that is, it's the Minions zone. Like, Minions <laughs> could not be, you cannot get more successful than fucking Minions. <laughs> yeah. So before we go any further, I'm just going to introduce the people who made this movie, because I think that's like an interesting backstory. Um, it is co-written and co-directed by two guys named Scott Moore and John Lucas, who have written many comedy films in this general zone, but their most famous project is for sure the Hangover movies. Um, so the, the first Hangover film was their big breakout in 2009. And that is kind of the epitome of a certain brand of R-rated gross out humour. It's kind of known for being quite sexist. It has loads of famous people in it and lots of other films have kind of tried to copy that. Like Bridesmaids came out two years after that. So it's kind of like that was almost a reaction to that. But um, I find this film quite interesting in, in that context because although this is also an R-rated comedy, it felt in a lot of ways a lot tamer than a lot of these films because most of the comedy and the tension is sort of about the fact that these women are like super fucking stressed out about Christmas. Like their lives are hell because there's so much pressure on women to be in charge of everything at Christmas. And then 
unlike the first film, which is about these three friends kind of befriending each other and bonding over the fact they find they're they're bad moms, although they're really not that bad, but like they're bad moms. In this one, we have like the second generation of bad moms, and it's about these mother-daughter relationships between these really fantastic actresses. And there is like a thread of kind of emotional authenticity to all these relationships, although of course it's through this really broad comedy lens but most of the r-rated stuff is like almost extraneous to that because it just means that all of these characters can drop f-bombs all the time and there's a couple of sort of Tyler humor scenes or like there's like a ball waxing scene because Catherine han's character is a waxer so like all of her jokes are just like i had to wax a vagina and it's like okay cool whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i think that the least successful stuff in the movie by far is this the more R-rated elements, which seem kind of grafted on, even though obviously the first movie was all about that. And it's, I mean, again, I haven't seen it, but based on sort of just like Wikipedia, it seems yeah. <laughs> like that was way more the like vibe of the first movie, which got better reviews than this one. And I found anytime someone was making a sex joke, I was just like, I don't care for this. This is not appealing to me. Which is, just to be clear, not a taste thing, as in we don't like sex jokes. It just means we didn't think the sex jokes in this movie were very good. (laughs) Correct, yes. And I think that's where the fact that this was written and directed by men really comes in, which wasn't something I was thinking about watching it, because I don't think I had looked that up beforehand. I just wasn't thinking about it one way or the other while watching. But in retrospect, I think that's definitely where that becomes a problem because we'll talk more about the plot and the sort of relationships between the women and their mothers, but all that stuff is quite broad and sort of stereotypical, but like basically worked for me because like a lot of women do have problems with their mothers. And even if it's presented in a sort of like, again, very like broad context here, the actresses are so good that it basically works, I think. But the stuff to do with, like, these raunchy jokes, now that I know they were written by men, I was like, oh, yeah, that it's not coming from a female sensibility They haven't brought the equivalent of The Hangover to this. They haven't got, like, the female version of The Hangover. That's not happening here. And it's like they're trying to target the white mom demographic, but I didn't feel like any of it was coming from a particularly authentic position. I'll, I'll go into a bit more on that later. But um, yeah, before we go any further, I'm just going to introduce the main characters in a bit more detail because I'm going to go ahead and assume most of our listeners have not seen A Bad Mom's Christmas. <laughs> We're always excited to cover an unexpected movie on this podcast. Um, so Mila Kunis is essentially the protagonist, although the three main characters kind of have somewhat equal screen time. But Mila Kunis is the most sort of normal and relatable and... They live in the suburbs of Chicago, although it could be anywhere, as is often the case in this type of film. And Mila is like super fucking stressed out about Christmas. She feels loads of pressure. And she is a recently divorced mother who is dating this nice and bland man played by Jay Hernandez, who also has a kid. They've got like a blended family, but they've not actually moved in together yet. And the big unpleasant surprise is that Mila Kunis's mother, the gorgeous and incredible Christine Baranski, shows up to ruin Christmas. And Christine is like a control freak who is also really upper class. Uh, the class issues in this are complete chaos. 
And she just like wants Christmas to be perfect and like forces them to do all this stuff for Christmas, including something that really annoyed me, which is portraying the Nutcracker as a five hour long Russian opera. And I was like, it's no, like everyone knows the Christmas Nutcracker show is like a children's ballet. But yeah, the other two characters, her wee pals are Kristen Bell playing Kiki, who is this nice girl, stay at home mom who's married to this bland, nice guy. Like the men in this this movie are largely non-entities. And she suffers from having a massively obsessive mother who like had her when she was like 18 and she's like, we're besties and is just basically her stalker. And then the third friend is Catherine Hahn, who is playing the raunchy and rebellious one who works in a beauty parlor as a waxer. And her mom is Susan Sarandon, who is a former rock and roll roadie and a gambling addict who is hugely irresponsible and I would say probably the worst. Like all of the moms are bad, but like she's a pretty bad mom. But kind of the, the most the most psychologically plausible pairing here is obviously the two main moms, Mila Kunis and Christine Bransky, even though it's extremely difficult to believe that they are in fact mother and daughter because they do not look similar and they do not seem to come from the same class demographic. <laughs> well, the class stuff in the film is is quite funny. At a certain point, you have to just suspend your disbelief, right? Because, yeah, it's just like, sure. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of film. Having not seen the first film, I just had to assume that it was a Gilmore Girls situation where, like, the family broke apart really early on and Mila Kunis must have had to have found her way somehow because she does not, like, have any of the trappings or behaviours of someone who is from the extreme upper classes, which Christine Bransky and her husband clearly are. I suspect that it's not discussed at all in the first yes. movie. Um, and they just decided that this would be her mother. I mean, it's like movies set in New York where everyone lives in like a palatial apartment. And that is no one's reality in New York City. Unless yeah, it's you like, wow, these people can really afford these big suburban houses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're all living in very large and very nice houses. But all this being said, Christine Baranski is just tremendous in this film, as she is in all her roles. We love Christine Peransky on this podcast. She's so good. The Good Fight is truly one of our biggest joint recommendations if you want to watch an incredible TV show. Yeah, uh, she's the lead in that. It's really worth getting Paramount Plus for like a month just to, to binge that one. And she is so persuasively embodying this kind of like very upper crust American Classy woman. Republican. She's a classy Republican who's also <laughs> openly racist. Yeah. And America doesn't have a literal aristocracy, of course, but there's a specific type of upper class person and like women specifically, which is obviously, you know, what she is in this movie, that exists on a sort of separate plane. And she's really playing that up in a very recognizable and persuasive manner. Her voice is even a bit different than it is normally. Well, she's a pro. I mean, this is why she is being so cast good. in the American Downton Abbey by Downton Abbey creator Julian Fellows, one of Britain's worst men. Uh, it's called <laughs> The Gilded Age. And uh, I don't think it's going to be good, but I will probably have to review it. And I will tolerate that because it stars Christine Baranski and Carrie Coon for some yeah. inexplicable reason. Very well uh, the, cast, though. <laughs> the reason is money. That's money. That's the the, the reason is obviously money. I mean, that is the reason why Christine Bransky is, in fact, in this film. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that it. One of the interesting things about the movie is that the cast is just like stacked, right? It is ludicrously stacked, and 
that feels just so reflective of parts that are available to women in Hollywood and especially older women. Yeah. Every single one of these bad moms is playing a boring mom in something else. <laughs> yeah. Christine Baranski obviously never was like a massive, massive movie star, but she is an enormous television star, did a ton of Broadway stuff, and I think is like generally accepted now as this like incredible beloved talent. Cheryl Hines, similarly, I don't think was ever a huge movie person, but like was on has been on all these millions of seasons of Curb Your Enthusiasm and is like a legendary comedy figure. And then Susan Sarandon obviously is a massive movie star and like a legend. And they all signed up for this movie and I just feel like it really shows like what is available to actresses when you hit a certain age. And this movie isn't very good, but it allows them to do fun kind of stupid stuff, which for an actor, like that's fun as opposed to most of the roles they're being offered, which as you say, are presumably like, you know, I'm sure they get a lot of roles where they're playing like respectable older ladies or like the moms of the main characters. And like, that's obviously the case here, but the screen time really is pretty evenly divided between the six central figures. So like, why not? Right. It, it totally makes sense to me that they're all in this film, even if upon first glance, it's kind of like, what is going on? I mean, there's also the thing with ensemble comedies where it's like, you just get to hang out, which is basically why Mamma Mia happened. I mean, obviously yes. Mamma Mia, the double thing is you get to hang out on a Greek island and they all had the best time of their lives. But um, yeah, I mean, well, huge drop. <laughs> that's totally true. And so many actresses have given interviews saying like, yeah, I basically never get to be in movies with other women. And that's more of a like big leading actress thing. And obviously Christine Baranski has like been on all these television shows with lots of female characters for the past 10 years. But it really is true that like in movies, especially there's usually like one female character and that's it. And in this, it's like all women. So that seems like it would be way more fun socially to like be on that set than a lot of alternatives. And like that is definitely part of the decision making process for people when they're signing up for stuff. And the younger actresses are not as, you know, like venerable as the older ones, but they're also really talented, right? So it all kind of makes sense to me. It's just kind of damning for the industry that like... <laughs> this is what all these people wind up in together because there's nothing better. But back to the plot, even though it is slightly absurd to imagine that Mila Kunis and Christine Baranski are related because as you said, they don't look anything alike. And also just like the acting styles don't really match. I think Mila Kunis is a really good actress, but like it just doesn't quite work, but like, it's fine. You just- We're all fans of Jupiter Ascending here. <laughs> <laughs> As you said, that part of the movie, that relationship is definitely the most sort of psychologically plausible and taken the most seriously by the film. The other two, which we'll mention in a second, are definitely more cartoonish. And um, I think part of it is the writing is a bit better. And part of it is just that Christine Baranski is just so good that she makes that character feel more emotionally real, even while she is also being really over the top. So basically, she shows up unexpectedly and her vision is that Christmas is just has to be this enormous 
project for the family where like she's going to throw this big party at her daughter's house on New Year's Eve without having asked her daughter's permission. And she sets up this like unbelievable like decorations all over the house. So she hires people to come and do this. And like imagine the most fancy Christmas decorations you've seen like anywhere. And it's these are on another level. Like it's just totally absurd. And at every scene where she and the children are together, she like whips out another unbelievably expensive present for them. So the kids, of course, are just like over the moon about this whole thing. Whereas Mila Kunis's vision for Christmas was that it was going to be really low key and like not a big deal. And she and the kid's father, who is not present in the movie, I assume that that all is dealt with in the previous film. Yeah, when I looked up the Wikipedia page for the first film, the kind of inciting incident of the first movie is that Mila Kunis's husband is a cheating scumbag and then they break up and she goes off and meets her fun gal pals. Well, there you go. But like both she and Christine Baranski are really concerned about the kids and like this Christmas has to be special for them because of this whole situation. And Mila Kunis's vision is just like, it's going to be low key. They're going to have a nice time. And Christine Bransky is like, no, in order for them to understand that like everything's fine and that they have worth, we have to go through all of this outrageously over the top stuff, which of course is very silly, but that leads to lots of conflict and provides lots of opportunities for over the top comedy. But it just feels like emotionally plausible to me. Peter Gallagher plays her husband and he's in the movie much less but he also is quite good I think playing again a very plausibly just like laid back guy he was my favorite of the men because like he felt like an actual character who both fits with like the context of this super rich couple where the women is like really dominating but he does actually quite like her and they have a happy kind of collaborative marriage um and then like the other men are basically kind of cardboard cutouts apart from Catherine Han has this like absurd mini love story subplot where while she's like working as a waxer she meets this like sexy Santa Claus stripper and she has to wax his balls so it's like they have a comedy ball waxing sequence but at this point I was like this is one of the points where I just felt like truly this script had just been written like on the fly like incredibly lazy joke because they want to do a joke illustrating that this guy has a big dick and it's like sure Classic source of comedy. Iconic. Perfect for the setting. And then they have Catherine Hahn be like, I think I'm going to need more wax. And I'm like, you're not waxing his dick. Like, are you talking about <laughs> how, how hot it is that he has, like, unnaturally enormous balls? Because that is not a traditional, like, cultural norm. But yeah, as you said earlier, some of the, like, more R-rated humour just doesn't work because it kind of feels like they're trying to do this, like, stale broad comedy, but more emotionally insightful, like, mother-daughter comedy. And then all this gross stuff is just like, well, you've just not done it very well. <laughs> but in terms of the framework for all this, like, they have kind of thought out the mother-daughter relationships, like, pretty well more or less. But like the whole foundation of this is definitely aimed at like this very sort of mainstream like middle America moms who are in straight relationships and are feeling under pressure at Christmas. And it's kind of the white mom demographic of like finally we get to relax by like going out and getting wasted and like being rebellious. Which in the first act of the film I was just like I was finding it quite hard to gauge in what way the moms are meant to be bad, right? Because, like, the text of the film is making them pretty relatable and, like, 
understandable and sympathetic, especially considering the fact that their moms are like the real bad moms because they've all fucked them up psychologically. But like the way all these women rebel, it's like they're like, oh, finally, let's just go get wasted at the mall. So they then like in the middle of Christmas in what is clearly defined as like the worst time of year where everything is stressful and like the mall is hell. They just go and make life worse for all of these like service industry workers. So there's this scene where there's like these three white wine moms like getting trashed in front of this like black woman who's working at some random store and I was like Karen energy but I realized that that is me over analyzing the scenario here we are yeah it's like I don't think we are meant to see them as being as nasty as sort of the protagonists of a film like The Hangover because they are just generally sort of more relatable but kind of just tying in with what I was saying earlier about the guys being these non-entities the film wants to be all like Christmas is terrible for moms like you have to do everything like there's this monologue at the beginning where you know you hear the main character talking about how much pressure there is to like wrap a million presents for Christmas and Kristen Bell's character is like every year I slave over every single person getting the perfect gift and like my kids get me nothing and my husband does nothing but the movie isn't actually critical of anyone's husbands or like critical over the institution it's more just like oh we have to you know, finally break free from this annoying thing and maybe have a slightly more chill Christmas. And then the film is at the end, it's like, oh, well, we forgot the real meaning of this, which is like doing everything for your children. And I'm like, that is not the real meaning of this. Like the real meaning of this is that none of your husbands are doing anything. <laughs> well, I mean, I agree that the the scene in the mall at the beginning is like <laughs> totally unexamined in a way that doesn't really work. But then that they don't really do anything like that again. Which no. is kind of it funny. Focuses, it refocuses on the older moms. <laughs> yeah. The ways in which they're bad, it, they're not really that bad because they're not really doing anything that's like bad <laughs> the whole time. I think there's more of that in the first one. And you're definitely correct about the fact that the men aren't presented in a particularly negative light because they're just not present. Like they just don't do anything. They barely have dialogue, which in some ways is quite refreshing, right? Because yeah. it's like, you know what? I don't really care. I don't really need to hear from you. Like, that's fine. It's weird, right? Because it's like, usually in the normal movie, which is about men, as all normal movies are, <laughs> and like the other version of this type of film, the women who are in the background and are irrelevant, they are there taking care of the protagonist's children so he can go and have the story. But in this, I was kind of like, I almost feel like he's not taking care of the kids off screen because like he's not done anything else. <laughs> yeah, what what the kids are doing while all of this is going on is a real mystery because... Playing with the Xboxes that Christine Baranski has bribed them with. <laughs> right. But I think one of the things that was interesting to me about watching the movie is like, as you said at some point, we're not the demographic, the target demographic for this movie, right? Like the target demographic for this movie is moms particularly moms who either don't have a job or maybe do have a job, but are still like bearing the burden of the housework and dealing with the kids way more than their husbands are, which is like sadly still a huge slash majority of mothers in the United States. And when I was watching this, I, even though I kind of was like, well, this isn't quite aimed at me. I could kind of appreciate and find interesting the ways in which it was servicing a demographic that just like doesn't get served by Hollywood in any way. 
And I don't think it's, I mean, clearly not making any effort to be subversive whatsoever in terms of like criticizing or, you know, even like remotely questioning those structures. But I do think that there is some value in making entertainment for that group of people because there's nothing, like there is truly nothing. And yeah. it, it makes sense to me that these movies made a ton of money because like, there's just like, what's the alternative? I mean, when you think about it in the context of this being essentially disposable entertainment, which is, I mean, I think arguably what they're making, like, but with A-list stars. It is so rare, like you say, for there to be a film of this type, which is explicitly just aimed at middle-aged women. That isn't, you know, that is like an entertainment movie and is not, you know, like a romance genre music movie or something of that type. Whereas the equivalent, I would say, is probably the 15 movies per year that like Liam Neeson or like or Bruce Willis make, right? Where it's yeah. like, it's aimed explicitly at like middle-aged straight men, it's disposable entertainment and all of them are just like a remake of Taken, you know? <laughs> and yes. uh, that is like extreme gender stereotyping, but that is also kind of the purpose of both of those films. Like they are aimed at like a really narrow demographic and it doesn't mean you can't enjoy them outside of that demographic, but like it's working within quite a conservative like gender roles image. It did also kind of make me think of, I've recently been watching a lot of films from the 1930s a period when the majority of Hollywood movies were aimed, if not wholly, then at least in part, at women. And there's loads of movies then which are, you know, comedies which have a majority female cast and are about, like, women doing stuff while not being... It's, like, it's not particularly, like, subversive for the times. It's still working in a mainstream context to be aimed at, like, a mainstream audience of women. And I was like, wow, times have really fucking changed since, like, 1932. (laughs) Where you would have, like... 25 Bad Moms Christmas movies coming out every year. (laughs) Well, right. It really is interesting to think how big that shift has been because I still think, I feel like the statistics are that women make up the majority, like just a slight majority, but still the majority of moviegoing audiences in America. Obviously right now, like who the fuck knows what's going on because everything is so up in the air, but it's not like women like stopped going to the movies, right? Yeah, I mean, the stats for, like, mainstream blockbusters are always relatively close to 50%. When the women go down to, like, 40%, it's, like, unusual enough to get a little Hollywood reporter blurb. (laughs) Yeah. And I think the thinking basically is that, like, men can get women to go to see a, like, action movie with them, whereas women cannot get men to go see a romantic comedy with them. Which I think is probably not inaccurate, but, you know, sexism reigns. That is that is the image that has been assumed. <laughs> yeah. But when you do have something like this, or like the TV show Outlander, which I watched one season of, and I'm, I think I've mentioned on this podcast before, and I just remember thinking, like, this is the most heterosexual thing I have ever watched in my entire life. Like, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Perfectly entertaining. It's bad. But, like, I, I binged the first season because, like, it has a... It's like eating potato chips. Like, you just have to keep going. But that show, again, was not good. But it was so popular because there's just not anything targeted. And that's also, like, clearly made for middle-aged women. Like, that was what was going on with that show, right? And I don't really understand why there's not a bigger effort to do that. I mean, television definitely is way more 
interested in that market. Yeah, there's also like more prestige trash. Like I have nothing but respect for prestige trash, which is what Outlander is. (laughs) Yes. And like, you'll get lots of like procedural type shows, like The Good Fight, right? Which like the main characters on that show are primarily middle-aged women. Something like Mayor of Easttown, which like because it's a crime thing that has like a wider range of people who are going to watch. But like Kate Winslet is a middle-aged woman. She's the main character of that show. But in terms of really just directly targeting this group, or like this isn't a romance film, obviously, but like Outlander was a romance, like they just don't seem to be very interested in it. And as evidenced by how much money this movie made, like there is clearly an audience. And I did want to mention the distributor because I think that that is an interesting element of what the sort of story of this film. It was distributed by STX which probably most of our listeners have not heard of because it's not a like mega company like, you know, Disney or even Universal. It was only founded like six or seven years ago, I think. And they have a partnership with a big Chinese company, um, the name of which I can't remember. It's obviously online. And so they're really focused on sort of that market as well. But if you look through the list of films that they've distributed in the United States, it is a ton of basically like genre trash, a lot of which is targeted at women. Not exclusively, and I don't think there's any like altruistic goal behind this. Like I don't think they're like, we are feminists and therefore we must, you know, whatever. But I think that they've identified a market that is being underserved. I mean, Hustlers, great movie. Yeah, that's definitely the best thing they've done. But if again, if you look through the rest of it, like there's lots of sort of like mainstream stuff that came and went and that like people wouldn't necessarily remember. But a lot of it did pretty well commercially. And for a studio or distributor that isn't one of these huge corporations, which now dominate, you know, the box office, Disney especially, the fact that they've been so successful is really remarkable. And I think it's because that they are willing to make a movie like this, which, you know, a studio like, Warners or Universal, like, clearly just is not interested in doing. But, like, there is a market for it. So, seems like a smart business decision to me. Which clearly it was, because they made these movies for very little money, and they were absolutely profitable. Like, they're gonna make a third one about the older women, which is set up at the end of this one. So, like, again, why not? Like, I would prefer if they were a little bit better quality-wise, but... I mean, I would, I would definitely watch that uh, grandma movie if I could be promised that someone else was in charge of writing it. Maybe Christine <laughs> Borowski can contact one of her many uh, industry contacts for that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was like when it got to the end and I was like, well, they're clearly setting up a sequel. The way they set up a sequel it had one of those these details in the movie where I was just like, okay, I can't tell if they've done this on purpose or not, which is they have Susan Sarandon basically apologize to her daughter for like being extremely neglectful and also she has a gambling addiction and is constantly asking her daughter Catherine Han for money and she comes back to apologize and you're like okay well she's once again going to make an effort to like tackle this addiction and then the ending is like oh we three older girls are all going to go to Vegas and I was like did you just forget that this is meant to be an element or is this meant to be like a really dark joke about just relapsing (laughs) on your gambling addiction immediately they've just like forgotten the fact that that is like the main problem with that character (laughs) Uh, I suspect that 
that it is what you say, that they were just like, where would be a good place to send them? Yay, Vegas, Vegas seems good. <laughs> we did the hangover, right? Like, why not just yeah. do it again with some old ladies? But, like, I would watch that on Netflix when it eventually makes its way out, right? Like, I probably wouldn't go pay for it in a theater. But those three actresses, you know what? Seems like it'll probably be entertaining. Baranski in particular, I just, I really would watch her pretty much read the phone book. I just love her so much. Again, watch The Good Fight. One of the best shows on television. I think that that's all we have to say about A Bad Mom's Christmas, which we have seasonally covered in the first week of August. Great movie for the beginning of August. (laughs) Thank you so much again to Nicole. So I'm sure you are wondering, um, are we going to do The Green Knight next week? Uh, we're not because it's not available in the UK yet. I'm very excited to see The Green the Green Knight when it's available and we will do a podcast about it, but um, that may not be for a few months. So we'll update you on that. <laughs> yeah, um, I, you know, obviously I'm on Letterboxd and I have not, like, no new movie has received the level of like, just everyone clearly has to see this movie widely discussed by people who are really into films, probably not going to make much money. I, I do want to see it. <laughs> I, I, I saw it last night, a, a wild double bill of A Bad Mom's Christmas <laughs> and The Green Knight yesterday. Really could not pick two more different movies. I must tell you, I did not like it very much. And the audience was completely confounded by the whole thing. I cannot think of a weirder movie that has been released wide in the United States I mean, at least in at least the past 10 years. I, I can't think of any example. Like, it is I'm so excited. I love a bizarre. weird movie. <laughs> yeah, it really did not do it for me, I have to say. But I'm, I think it will be really interesting to talk about. And I just bought, uh, I just ordered a copy of the poem in the original Middle English for myself to read. So we will be prepared to have a great discussion. But God knows when that will actually be, given the current situation with theaters in the UK. But in the meantime, next week, we will be doing another Patreon request and discussing the 70s horror film Ganja and Hess, which I have been meaning to see for like years. And as with so many things, have not gotten around to. So this is a great excuse to finally do so. Vampire movie. Yeah. Described as an experimental horror film. Very promising. I love a vampire movie. So that will be... Very cool to talk about. And it's screened at Cannes, which I did not know. So, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I think that that will be really interesting to talk about. So if you want to watch that in anticipation, we will be discussing that next week. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you would like to sponsor us on Patreon or perhaps request a movie for us to watch, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Scenes, where I recently released an episode about the costume design of The Expanse TV show. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.